0: I'm sure this is not going to be a surprise to you, but there is not an awful lot that is certain in this world. In fact, there is very little that is certain in this world. I think it was President George Bush Senior who said the only thing that was certain was death and taxes. Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, would disagree. He says that those things aren't certain, but there is one thing that is absolutely certain. Having commended and encouraged the Thessalonians concerning their lives for Jesus, oh dear, going too far ahead. Uh, he commended their lives for Jesus in the present, lives characterized by faith, love, and hope. Now, in the end of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five, Paul focuses on their motivation for living for Jesus which is in the future. And Paul holds up the return of Jesus as the key motivation for Christians to get on and live for Jesus now. Last week we saw that the Thessalonians were worried about their Christian brothers and sisters who had died. And the question was, had they missed out on the return of Jesus? If Jesus was coming back and there were some Christians who were now dead, would they miss out on the return of Jesus? And Paul says no. The return of Jesus is the only truly guaranteed event in anyone's future. Everyone will see it. Some will die before Jesus returns. They will be raised, Paul has said, and they will see it. Some will be alive and they will see it too. Everybody will see it. Every single person who has ever lived. It will be totally unmissable. In our reading this week, it appears that while being motivated by the return of Jesus, the Thessalonians are also a little anxious, and we might say more than a little anxious, about what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. They know something, you see, of what the return of Jesus will be like. The Thessalonians weren't thinking, Oh, Jesus is coming back. Won't that be nice? Because they know that as brilliant and wonderful and spectacular as it will be, nice is not a word that you would use about it. And that's implied in the Greek word that I think I mentioned last week, the word that Paul uses when he talks about the return of Jesus, he calls it the parousia. And that was a word that was used to describe the return of a king from a great battle and the whole city or the whole country almost, going out to welcome him back and to glory in his splendor as the victorious king. It's an awe-inspiring word, parousia. But as far as the return of Jesus is concerned, his work is not complete. He is coming to finish everything that needs to be done. He's coming, as we saw in that reference in Joel, to destroy evil. And that's what Paul picks up in our reading this morning. Paul just doesn't want the Thessalonians and us to be aware and motivated by the return of Jesus. He wants us to be ready for it. Hence all this talk about getting ready for stuff. Because it is something we need to be ready for. Did you spot the change in language from last week? Last week Paul was talking about the coming of the Lord. the Lord himself will come down from heaven. That's a description of the return of Jesus. Now in chapter, one, sorry, chapter 5 verse 2 Paul says, You know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That's the language now. It's the language of Joel chapter 2, verse 11. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? And this is not a one-off in the Old Testament. There are 17 different prophets, books of prophecy in the Old Testament. Nine of them. Talk about the day of the Lord in these terms. A very common theme. God coming to sort out his world once and for all. Judgment. How can you be ready for that? That's the point of this reading. The Thessalonians were thinking, well, if Jesus is going to come and it is going to be totally awesome, if it is going to be the day of the Lord, surely knowing when that is going to happen that would be a help wouldn't it and so they've asked Paul for some clues as to the date Timothy has been to see them and they've given Timothy their questions Timothy has gone back and Timothy sat down with Paul and he said now Paul these are the things that the Thessalonians are concerned about in particular can you tell them when Jesus is going to come back because they think that will help them be ready for his return And that brings us to our first point. This is the theme for this morning, being ready for the return of the king. And I'll explain why it's not getting ready, but being ready in a moment. Being ready, and the first thing Paul says is not knowing when Jesus is going to return. What I mean there is you don't get ready for the return of Jesus by knowing when it is going to happen. Knowing when Jesus is going to return is not the way to prepare for it. As we have seen, having a fixed time for something can help in getting ready for it. If you know you're going to bed, then you've got to brush your teeth. You've got to put your pajamas on. You've got to give the ham to the dogs. There are things that you have to go through. Not much point in sort of thinking in the morning when you get up, well, I'll keep my pajamas on all day because I know I'm going to have to put them on tonight, so I'll be ready for bed by the time I get to bed. That doesn't work like that. The sensible approach is to have a routine that gets you ready at a certain time, so that you can then go to bed, but that approach is not always appropriate to the things that are going to happen. Imagine you're looking after a fire station. You're in charge. If the alarm rings, you don't really want to have to go and check the tires on the fire engine, and make sure the battery's charged up, and fill the tanks with water, and put the ladder on the roof. Those things need to be always ready. Sometimes, in many situations, it's not about getting ready. It's about being ready. And that is nowhere more true than in regard to the return of Jesus or the day of the Lord. Hence, being ready for the return of the king. Remember, Paul is writing in response to questions. We've said that. And the Thessalonians have said, come on, Paul, give us a clue here. So we can make sure we're ready when Jesus returns. So Paul starts this section with the words. If you've got your Bibles, you'll see it there. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. Paul seems to be saying, come on, guys. You've asked this question, but we shouldn't need to write this to you because you know these things already. Paul had explained this to them when he was in Thessalonica. Paul had passed on to them the teaching of Jesus, the sort of thing we read in Mark 13, verse 32, where Jesus says, but about the day or hour, the day of the Lord, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. Jesus said, I don't know when I'm coming back. Only God the Father knows, which is a strange thing. We can talk about that later. No one knows apart from God the return of Jesus will be a surprise. And yet, how often have we seen over the last 2,000 years people having a go at predicting the date of the return of Jesus? So many people have had a go, and they've all been wrong, and not a little, if I can say this caringly, not a little stupid, because the Bible says time and time again, don't delve into the details of the when. In my lifetime, the Jehovah's Witnesses have done this several times. 1974 was the big one, but then several times after that. This is the date Jesus is going to return. This is the date. Harold Camping, back in 2011, remember him? A Baptist minister in America who decided that it was going to be the 21st of May, 2011. And then it wasn't. So he said, oh, sorry, I got that wrong. It's 1,000 hours after that. So he then came up with the 21st of October, 2011. That passed And so then Harold Camping just sort of snuck off, slunk off, kept his mouth shut. A few people reading the Mayan calendars around about 2012 decided that that was going to be it. A pastor friend of mine in Surrey was convinced the world was going to end in 2012. And so the list goes on. Paul says, don't do that. Don't get bogged down in trying to guess, and it's all you can do, guess the date of the return of Jesus because Paul says you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night now that's a bit odd isn't it comparing Jesus to a thief he's not comparing Jesus to a thief he's not saying Jesus is morally like a thief he's saying there are things about the way a thief operates which are similar to Jesus a thief doesn't tell you when he's coming a thief doesn't say right I'll make the appointment half past one in the morning on Thursday I'll be there that's ridiculous. That is how it is with the return of Jesus. Unexpected. If anyone picks a date and says, I know that Jesus will return, the one thing you can be sure of is they are wrong. Unexpected. The next thing Paul says, and he changes his metaphor there, he says, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, in verse 3, as labor pains on a pregnant woman. Slightly different, while the thief is sudden and unexpected, labor pains are sudden and unavoidable. So knowing when Jesus is going to return is a terrible way to prepare because you will be wrong and you will think you are safe but are about to be destroyed, that's what Paul says. So don't get bogged down in dates. Now the obvious application for us is don't waste time trying to predict The time of Jesus' return, because people are still doing it. I got an email a few weeks now, a few months ago now, back in August, from a guy who said, I've been doing a lot of geological research. I've been studying the weather patterns, and I've been reading my Bible, and I can tell you the return of Jesus is going to happen on the 16th of September. I didn't bother replying. He had all sorts of things to say about people who disagreed with him and disbelieved him. And he said, when you get to the 16th of December and it doesn't happen, then you can criticize me until then and you'll see I'm right. 16th of December came and went. I didn't get another email apologizing. What he wanted me was to buy his book and do certain things. That's not the way to get ready for the return of Jesus. So for us, don't do that. If you're thinking of that, if you've got a, a timeline in your pocket which you've worked out this week, please don't come and show me afterwards. Or you can, but then I'll tell you why it's wrong to do that. Because this is what Paul is saying. Now, I don't suppose many of us are doing that this morning. More relevant, when someone says to you, "Ah, I know when Jesus is going to return. Don't believe them and don't trust them. And don't get worried by what they're saying. Because... According to the Bible, they are obviously false teachers who are ignoring direct commands of Jesus and Paul and many other parts of the Bible. They will probably be encouraging you to buy their book, like my friend who emailed me. Or encouraging you to stop up, stock up on tin food, batten down the hatches and hide yourself away. That often goes with predictions of the return of Jesus, which perhaps not strangely at all is the absolute opposite of what the Bible says we should be doing as we wait for the return of Jesus. So where is that coming from? If it's not coming from God who wants us to be doing one thing but telling us to do the complete opposite, you can make your own conclusions on that. Perhaps, though, the most important application for us is a negative one. We may not have a date in mind when we think Jesus will return, but how many of us have a period in mind when we are sure he won't return? as if we know he won't return. Which is not the same, but it is similar in claiming to know when he will return. How many of us this week are living like we are absolutely convinced Jesus won't come back this week? And my worry is that for many of us, myself included, I am not nearly as enthusiastic as I should be or ready for the return of Jesus. Jesus because I don't really, in practice, believe that it's going to happen. What we need to grasp is Jesus will return. It will be sudden, it will be unexpected, it will be unavoidable. And we need to be ready. And if we're not, we need to get ready now and stay ready. So what does that look like? Well, that's where Paul takes us next. Being ready is not about knowing when Jesus returns. Being ready is living now with Jesus as your king. That is the way to be ready. And that's what Paul tells us in verses 4 to 8. The return of Jesus will be a surprise, there's no getting away from that, but there are two sorts of surprises, aren't there? There's the shocking surprise where something awful you never believe would happen does happen out of the blue. That's the surprise Paul says is coming on a world that is convinced that everything is going to be okay, and there is no God, and he's not going to do anything if there was. There's no more dangerous a situation to be in than to be in danger and believing yourself to be safe. But that's not the surprise awaiting Christians. Because Paul says in verse 4, you brothers and sisters are not in darkness. Now what does he mean by that? Well, darkness means several things in the Bible. It means the realm of sin and evil. That's not where we live. We don't live in that kingdom, that spiritual kingdom. We live in the kingdom of light. The realm of darkness means to be in ignorance, to live in darkness, not knowing. The realm of darkness in the Bible Is often talked about as being separated from God and all that is good. Paul says that that is not us. So the day of the Lord, when Jesus returns, will not surprise us in the way that a thief would surprise us. Paul is now talking about the wonderful surprise when you believe something will happen and you're looking forward to it, but it hasn't happened yet and you have no idea when it's going to happen. The Christian, the return of Jesus, the day of the Lord, the day when everything will get sorted and all the world's problems removed, will be a massive surprise. It will be a totally awesome, exhilarating, terrifyingly wonderful day. But we know something of what it's going to be like. Christians, we are not in darkness. So we will not be shocked in the way that someone is when they discover they've been burgled. Have you ever been in that situation? I have, once. Horrible situation. Actually, we didn't notice it for a start. Our house was in such a mess. I think they probably tidied up a bit as they took stuff. But then the realization starts to hit. The TV's gone, the stereo's gone. You realize someone's been there. That won't be our experience as Christians. As we sang, for us, even though it will be staggeringly exhilarating, when our faith becomes sight, and the clouds are rolled back as a scroll, the trumpet sounds, the Lord descends. But for us, it will be well with our souls. We will not be absolutely terrified out of our wits. The Thessalonians are understandably anxious about that day, so Paul reassures them in verse five, you are all children of the light and children of the day. What does that mean? Well, it means, there's a few things it could mean. Jesus called himself the light of the world, so to be children of light means to be the followers of Jesus. The Psalms talk about God's word being a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. To live in the light, children of the light, means to live by the light of the Bible. God's people in the Bible are called out to be a light to the world around them, a dark world. To be children of the light means to be shining the light of Jesus to the world around us. And to live in the light is to not live in fear. Darkness can be a scary place. But the light, we can see what's happening. We know what's coming. That's what we are. We don't belong to the night or to the darkness, Paul says. That is the realm of evil. To be in the dark, we talk about that, don't we? And it's not a good place to be. It means people haven't told you stuff. You're ignorant of stuff you would love to know about. To be in the dark is to be under God's judgment. Why else did it go pitch dark at the cross as Jesus suffered God's judgment in our place? Judgment and darkness go together. To be in the dark is to be in the grip of sin. Nicodemus came to Jesus when... At night, because he was lost and he discovered Jesus to be the light of the world. Judas went out from the Last Supper and John tells us it was night. And that is not just a time stamp. It was darkest night as Judas went out to betray Jesus. But that's not what we are. Even if sometimes that's where we live, we live in a dark world. We live in a world of sadness and pain. We shouldn't live low, though, like we're at home here. This is not where we belong. So then let us not like the other not be like others, Paul says, who are asleep, oblivious to what's going on around them, about what's going to happen. Let's be awake and sober. Let's live in alertness and clarity, conscious of what's coming, living in the light, following Jesus, the light of the world, using the Bible, the light for our feet, holding out the light of the gospel to the dark world around us. Being filled with the Holy Spirit who makes us alive. Not giving our lives to things that will drag us away from God. Sober, that implies an absence of alcohol, doesn't it? And of course alcohol can so easily come in and take control of our lives. But there are so many other things, things that we might call good things, that can control our lives and take us away. Paul has already told us about these things in 1 Thessalonians 1. And he's told us how the Thessalonians turn from these idols to serve the living and true God. They turn from things like money and the things it can buy. They turn from their career ambitions they turn from their obsession with their hobbies. Those things are good, and yet they can drag us away from God. We need to be wary of those things and sober minded, focusing on God. Even things like families and friends can drag us away from God if they become our obsession. Paul says we've got to live in the light. And he introduces another metaphor. He talks about putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Now, what does that mean? I haven't got time to go into that in detail. But there's two things we can be certain of. Paul talks about faith, love, and hope protect- protecting us. Does that ring any bells from Thessalonians? Faith, love, and hope have been the three strands that have gone through the whole of the letter. Paul starts off in verse one, we always thank, of chapter one, I'm sorry, verse two of chapter one, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Remember for our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope. That's the Christian life. And now Paul is saying, your Christian life should be something that protects your heart and protects your mind. These things will guard our hearts and minds. But I think Paul uses this language for another reason as well. Listen to the description of Jesus in Isaiah 59 verse 17. Jesus, doesn't say Jesus, it says, he put on righteousness as his breastplate, the helmet of salvation on his head. He put the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. The pieces of armor that Paul calls us to put on are very similar to the ones that Jesus is wearing as he comes in judgment. Paul is saying, follow Jesus, the warrior king who will return on the day of the Lord. That's how to be ready. Living the Christian life. That's the heart of Paul's message here. The return of Jesus is not something to get ready for in the future. It's something to be ready for now. We are to live lives of readiness. Now, of course, if you're not a Christian this morning, you need to change that. That's how you become ready. There are various things you can do. We're running Christianity Explored starting a week tomorrow, I think it is. Love to have you on that. You could talk to me after the service. I'd love to spend some more time chatting about that with you. Or you could do it now. Praying a prayer like, Lord Jesus, please. There's lots about this that I don't understand. But please forgive me. Please save me. And help me to live this sort of life. And if we are Christians, we need to be ready now, today and this week. Not because Jesus will definitely return this week, but he could. but this is how we are to live as we wait. Living for Jesus as our king is the center, the most important thing of our lives as we await His return. But all the while and with this we close, remembering that our eternal security is not based on how we live. Our certainty of being okay when Jesus returns is God's call on us and Jesus' death in our place. Paul says in verse 9, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath but to receive salvation. Why are we Christians? It's not because we've done really well and we've earned God's good pleasure. We've earned God's blessing. It's because God has made it possible. God has made it happen. That is why we can be sure it will be well on the return of Jesus as it is well with us now. If we thought our confidence for the future lay in our alertness and our obedience now to Jesus, that will lead to pride if we think we've done quite well. And pride is never a good thing for Christians. And it will also lead to despair when, not if, when we do mess up. The bottom line is, if we are Christians, it is God's doing, not ours. He has given us salvation through Jesus, so we can be certain. And again, if we're Christians, it's not because we have made ourselves good enough for God. We could never do that. It's because Jesus has died for us. That's what Paul says. Whether we are, no, no. we receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. That is why we can be certain. And if we are trying our best to live as Christians, but our hope is in God's salvation of us through the death of Jesus in our place, then the promise is whether we are awake or asleep, whether we die or whether we're still around when Jesus returns, we will live forever together with him. It's not uncommon for people to become obsessed with the details returning the surrounding, uh, surrounding the return of Jesus. The key sign that they are on the wrong track is that it takes over their lives and stops them doing what they should be doing as Christians. You can't talk to them without them jumping on their hobby horse and riding off into the sunset talking about signs and wonders in the sky and the need to sort of take ourselves away and keep ourselves safe. Maybe that's why Christians don't think enough about the return of Jesus. Paul's instruction to us is don't get bogged down in the detail, dates and times, etc. Live in the light in a dark world, following Jesus as your king and praising God for the way he has rescued you. That's Paul's summarized instruction from our reading and then he finishes again. Therefore, encourage one another. That is what we're meant to do with this. Encourage each other to keep going, living the, in the light, living out our faith through this week. We're meant to do that together. You can't do this on your own. This is why church is so important. You can't encourage one another if you're just going through the Christian life on your own. We are to encourage one another in church. Church. By praying for each other, drawing alongside each other from time to time and talking about the things that we struggle with. We're meant to be building each other up, Paul says, in faith, love and hope. And Paul looks at the church in Thessalonica and he says, just in fact, as in fact you are doing. That's what we've got to carry on doing. This is the aim. Again, as we saw last week, the details about the return of Jesus Are meant to encourage us to get on living for Him now. We are meant to be encouraged and we are meant to be encouraging.